You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Twitter and Facebook shut down Chinese information operations. A jailbreak for the latest version of iOS is out. Facebook may have known about the view as bug. Vulnerabilities in Google's Nest cams are patched. Instagram gets a data abuse bounty program. And the FCC released a report on the CenturyLink outage. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Bennett Moe with your CyberWire summary for Thursday, August 20th, 2019. Court filings suggest that Facebook may have known about and failed to fix the view as bug. Exploitation of the flaw is thought to have resulted in the theft of access tokens that enabled hackers to obtain sensitive information about roughly 14 million Facebook users and less sensitive information on some 15 million more. The allegations appear in a filing related to a class action suit opened since the breach was disclosed in September 2018. Twitter and Facebook both said yesterday that they had taken down Chinese state-sponsored information operations focused on discrediting the ongoing protests in Hong Kong. Twitter suspended 936 accounts on its platform, while Facebook removed seven pages, three groups, and five accounts. Twitter also preemptively removed about 200,000 mostly inactive accounts that it identified as part of the same network. According to Twitter, the operations were, quote, deliberately and specifically attempting to sow political discord in Hong Kong, including undermining the legitimacy and political positions of the protest movement on the ground, unquote. The Facebook pages shared political posts that portrayed the protests in a negative light, including photos comparing the protesters to ISIS fighters and cockroaches. Twitter said that most of the accounts used VPNs, but some used unblocked Chinese IP addresses. Facebook launched its own investigation based on a tip from Twitter and linked the operation to individuals associated with the Chinese government. The Washington Post notes that this is the first time two social networks have called out the Chinese government directly. Twitter also announced in a separate statement on Monday that it would no longer accept advertising from state-controlled media organizations. The company had recently drawn criticism for running ads purchased by Chinese state-run news outlets. Under the new policy, those media will continue to be able to tweet, just not buy ads. Motherboard reports that Apple accidentally reintroduced a vulnerability in iOS 12.4 that it had patched in iOS 12.3. Security researchers discovered the bug over the weekend, and one of them publicly posted a jailbreak for the latest version of iOS on Monday. As the register notes, this is relevant even for users who don't plan on jailbreaking their phones because jailbreaking tactics exploit arbitrary code execution flaws. Such exploit code is now open-sourced in the jailbreak, and it can be repurposed for malicious endeavors. Apple is working on a patch, which it will probably release in the next few days, but until then, iPhone users should exercise caution when downloading apps from the App Store. Cisco Talos discovered and helped remediate eight vulnerabilities in Google's Nest Cam IQ indoor camera. The issues could have been exploited to commit denial-of-service attacks, code execution, and information theft. 
Facebook has expanded its data abuse bounty program to include Instagram. The program is meant to encourage security researchers to find and report third-party apps that misuse their data. The company is also launching an invite-only bug bounty program to test Instagram's checkout feature, which lets users purchase products within the Instagram app. Small businesses are increasingly being subjected to cyber attacks, and they lack the resources to build strong security programs. Dave Bittner talks to John Bennett, Senior Vice President and General Manager of the Identity and Access Management business at LogMeIn. We recently just released research, SMB's Guide to Modern Identity Research, where we surveyed over 700 IT and security professionals from organizations up to 3,000 employees. And the, the key takeaways is, and I don't think these are going to be a surprise to anybody, is that 98% of our respondents said, you know, they see room for improvement in terms of how they're uh, managing their identity access management for their employees and securing that customer sen- customer sensitive data. And and so I think we're, I think where we see our sales today is just especially with small and medium businesses, is that um, increasingly uh, they are being targeted for either ransomware or cybersecurity attacks. And they also are in a position where um, they don't have those tools deployed that enterprises are increasingly deployed to manage and secure their employees' identity and access to those sensitive systems. I think the you know the state is is there's increased risk, there's increased awareness, and SMBs are are looking to uh, deploy uh, better uh, tools and solutions to manage and secure uh, there's employees identity access management, but they also are looking for you know solutions that uh, fit you know their needs, their size of their business, and that are easier to adopt, more cost effective. Is cost one of the primary drivers here? I mean, what makes a a system more effective for a, a smaller business rather than a large enterprise? That's a great question, Dave. I th- on you know what makes a great solution or an effective solution for a small and medium business, I think is a couple things. One, if they look at the plethora of solutions that are available to uh, large enterprises today, the first is complexity. It's not just a cost factor, it's whether it's single sign-on or password management vaulting or uh, multi-factor authentication. Uh, privilege access management solutions. What they look at is there are all these uh, bespoke point solutions in the market uh, today that they require um, um, deep subject matter expertise, not just to select them and evaluate them, but once they've deployed them, they also have to have increased expertise in terms of managing those solutions within their organizations. A lot of these businesses, you know, they, they know that uh, they want to uh, uh, increase their investment, but they're looking for, I think, solutions where they're either more holistic uh, approach, where it's solving more than just securing one point of the access, whether that's single sign-on or multi-factor authentication or, or PAM or password management vaulting. And then the second piece is I think they're looking for solutions that with their current IT staff, uh, that these are that the administrative experience, that the security policy experience is tailored to, you know, a medium or small business where they're able to uh, deploy these tools and get the value from these tools uh, without having to shift, you know, additional headcount into the organization to manage those. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's the trick really is uh, being able to dial in that combination of, of uh, needs specific to that kind of business. Exactly. And look, I think we in the industry also, you know, we have a responsibility as we're seeing, you know, this increased threat and the pain point that it's creating, you know, for small and medium businesses. We know that 
um, when a small business is hacked, 60% of those, they go out of business within six months of experiencing a breach. And hmm. I think we in the industry have a responsibility to um, make our solutions uh, easier for organizations that have, you know, four to five IT professionals. They wear many hats. They don't have a CISO. They don't have threat analysts in their organization. Um, that we have a responsibility to also make our tools affordable, easier for them to understand what the cost is uh, for deploying our tools uh, and make it easier for them to deploy those to their employees uh, and, and manage those and, and have an ROI that they can justify in their organization. It's I, I think it's something we, we all, all vendors in the organization, I mean, all vendors in this identity access management ecosystem, we have a responsibility to do a better job here in terms of accessibility for mid-market and below. Yeah, one of the things that your recent research looked at was uh, individual teams within companies. Who, who's doing uh, better jobs than others? What sort of stuff did you find there? Yeah, so, you know, that's, you know, you know, in the, you know, some of the key, you know, takeaways, and I think these aren't a surprise, is, and we looked at the research, you know, organizations like finance and IT, like they're doing a better job in terms of making sure that our employees are following um, good behavior um, and good policies and securing that sensitive data in, in a way that is um, uh, protecting uh, the organization from, from external threats. And I, I think the other thing we learned in, is that when you look at uh, parts of the organizations within small and medium businesses, whether that's marketing or sales, um, again, what these employees want to do, um, they want to be able to use the tools that are available to them, whether they're sanctioned or not sanctioned, to be able to get their job done. And what we see there is the behavior there is, you know, generally high sharing of passwords, uh, using applications outside the organization, password reuse. What we found in our research is in those parts of the organization, they're struggling with the balance of the employees. What the employees want is convenience. Um, and they want, uh, if they're going to improve their security posture, uh, it has to um, be an effortless for them in order to be able to to use the tools that they want to. And and I think that it's not a surprise, but I think it's an area that there are simple things that businesses can do to improve the security posture for those parts of the organizations. Deploying, you know, a password management for improving that. Deploying multi-factor authentication. What we've learned is we know that um, uh, employees, there's a high reuse of, of passwords across the organization that they're using applications that even if a, a medium business or a small business has deployed a single sign-on solution, which is using that single password and credentials to access, you know, applications that are supported by that solution, that there's a, a host of applications that we all bring into the workforce uh, that are not covered under single sign-on. And so the other thing that we found from our research is, and I think there's a high awareness and we're seeing an acceleration in the adoption of multi-factor authentication because, again, this is a way where you're using a second set or a third set of either biometrics or credentials or a trusted device that is securing all those access points, whether it's through a single sign-on application or an application outside of that. And that's John Bennett, Senior Vice President and General Manager of the Identity and Access Management business at LogMeIn. Lawfare has published an appeal for public engagement with the Cyberspace Solarium Commission. This commission, seen as a successor to the original Solarium Council of Elders that worked out U.S. deterrent policies in the early days of the Cold War, is trying to do something similar for cyberspace. If you have insights, suggestions, or perspectives you'd like to share with the commissioners, drop them an email. Their address is info at solarium.gov. 
so let them hear from you. The Federal Communications Commission yesterday released a report on the countrywide network outage experienced by CenturyLink last December. The outage affected 911 systems across 29 states, and at least 886 911 calls were not delivered as a result. The outage was traced to CenturyLink's node in Denver, Colorado, which for unknown reasons generated four malformed management packets and sent them to all connected devices. These packets had valid headers and checksums and had no expiration time. Each node that received the packet would retransmit them to all of its connected nodes. The report explains that, quote, the exponentially increasing transmittal of malformed packets resulted in a never-ending feedback loop that consumed processing power in the affected nodes, which in turn disrupted the ability of the nodes to maintain internal synchronization. Without this internal synchronization, the node's capacity to route and transmit data failed. As these nodes failed, the result was multiple outages across CenturyLink's network. Unquote. The FCC said CenturyLink could have prevented or mitigated the outage by disabling unused systems, implementing stronger filtering, and using processor utilization alarms. Ars Technica notes that the FCC didn't announce any disciplinary action for CenturyLink, nor did it order the company to take steps to improve its network. It's an interesting case of how a small issue can cascade into a larger one. It seems that there was no attack involved. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire.
And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Michael Sechrist. He's chief technologist at Booz Allen Hamilton, and he also leads their managed threat services intelligence team. Michael, it's always great to have you back. I know one thing that you and your team have been tracking is this notion of quickness to exploits. What can you share with us about that? Sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me back. Yeah. So one of the things that is growing is the time to exploit and a, a particular um, you know vulnerability. What we've seen in some cases, obviously within days, sometimes even before potentially the exploit is even announced, there has already been exploitation seen in the wild. And that has to do with the fact that, you know, once typically, you know, on your typical vulnerability scale, once a patch is released, kind of malicious actors or even kind of sort of gray hat or white hat uh, actors can typically just do a differential of the patch uh, and then the file that's issued and then kind of the current release of the software and find potentially the vulnerability and what was changed in the code and kind of reverse engineer that and try to find a way to reverse engineer that code into an actual functioning exploit. You know, this is kind of a cottage industry that's obviously been in place for for years, but the rise in this and, and the quickness to publish some of this results either via a GitHub page or um, just a blog has grown significantly and something that we as an Intel organization work hard to try to track for our clients as well as ourselves. From a practical point of view, does this mean that organizations out there really need to accelerate their patching process? It's definitely something for an organization to consider. You know, there's been some discussion that, you know, most Microsoft patches can be reverse engineered in this way within a matter of a few days. I think with other kind of patches that we know are applied to software that is or even middleware or hardware that's difficult to identify or difficult to patch, you see more actors trying to find exploits and reverse engineer patches for those kind of to target that software or hardware in that case. The patching process has to speed up, but I think it has to speed up for the software that has kind of higher likelihood of tack or exploit just because a, um, a vulnerability exists. And even if it's a high CVSS score, that doesn't necessarily mean that that vulnerability is going to um, be uh, developed for that that vulnerability. It's going to take you know a lot of other factors typically for a full functioning exploit to be developed and to be really readily used in the wild. Obviously, we've been tracking this blue keep vulnerability from the that Microsoft put out and some of the now functioning exploits that are in the wild for that because it does have the potential to uh, release another kind of wanna cry event in the industry and that's mm. something that our clients and basically everybody who works in cyber threat intelligence is concerned with what are your tips in terms of organizations setting priorities for for ordering uh, how they go about doing their patching i think it's a bit of an art and a science here a strong patching cycle and having a well-oiled machine to kind of release patches is important so that you can, in times of crisis, when you really need to get a patch out because you know potential exploitation is happening at that moment, potentially even exploitation that you're seeing on other sort of logs and servers, there has to be that kind of reliance and that trust in your organization that we can push a patch out as fast as we might need to. You know, in some cases, that could be less than a day, I would think for an organization. And that's a, that's a significant operational undertaking in a lot of cases. But the other kind of flip side to that is to build an intelligence kind of function that works well with your vulnerability management team so that you're not constantly setting uh, fire drills off in your organization. A lot of times there aren't that many vulnerabilities that you really need to patch in that way. 
just because it reaches a certain, like I said, CVSS score, or it is something that's even being talked about in the industry, that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to go light your hair on fire and try to patch within a day. But there are in certain circumstances, and I think this is where the art comes in. Um, there's uh, obviously it's based on, you know, kind of your risk posture as an organization, as well as maybe where your critical data is residing. There are some instances where you're going to want to pull that fire drill lever and get kind of the organization, you know, moving very fast to release a patch because potentially, you know, the struts software platform is vulnerable and you use some of your critical apps rely on struts and are externally facing. Well, that might be a situation that you want to not only validate whether kind of an exploit would work against those systems, but if it does, you need to patch immediately. All right. Well, Michael Sechrist, thanks for joining us. And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. <laughs>